I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, with our military leaders and intelligence personnel, with our diplomats and our development experts, with the Congress and the Vice President, as well as with Mr. Ghani and many others around the world, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. That was President Biden announcing this week that he plans to finally end the U.S. war in Afghanistan on September 11th of this year, the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks on the World Trade Towers and the Pentagon that caused us to invade the country in the first place. Since then, the U.S. has decimated al-Qaeda and hunted down and killed Osama bin Laden. But more than 3,000 U.S. troops remain in that country today, helping to support a corruption-ridden Afghan government that has made little progress against the Taliban forces who once gave safe haven to the terror group that attacked us. Biden's announcement was arguably the most decisive move yet by any American president to end the era of forever wars that have bogged down the United States and cost trillions of dollars for the past two decades. But it also may be the riskiest decision he's made in office yet, raising the prospect that television viewers may end up seeing precisely the kinds of images they last saw at the end of the Vietnam War when helicopters hovered over the roof of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, seeking to rescue the last remaining Americans before the Viet Cong took over and began executing Vietnamese soldiers and government officials who were our allies. We'll get two perspectives on Biden's decision, from Richard Clark, who served as White House counterterrorism advisor when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, and from Elliot Ackerman, a novelist and Marine who served multiple tours of duty in Afghanistan on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So Biden's decision made a big splash, huge headlines this week when he announced it, and then very little public interest beyond that. I was just watching Biden's press conference with the Japanese prime minister. There were questions about China, questions about Iran, nothing about his decision to take all American troops out of Afghanistan. Yet I have a feeling that this one is going to come back in a big way. The risks here are enormous. The prospect that the Afghan government will fall and the Taliban will take over seem very real to me and a lot of other national security experts. Uh, and uh, the political costs here could become very, very high for the Biden White House. Yeah. I mean, Look, there's a reason that uh, presidents for 20 years haven't made this decision. It's a hard one to make. You know, we all will recall that when Barack Obama was president, um, he was, you know, tortured by this decision and ultimately didn't pull out of Afghanistan, but surged our troops there by, you know, uh, 100,000. 
Yeah, but put an end date, right, for when it would end. And and yeah. put an and put an end date. Uh, yeah. But let's remember his vice president, Joe Biden, at the time was leading the argument on the other in the other direction, which was and didn't have a lot of followers, by the way, which was to um, do the opposite and, and to leave behind just a small counterterrorism force, a small footprint. Uh, so these were his instincts. Uh for a long time, and you have to believe that he's been, you know, biding his time, and and this was something that he was, uh, you know, going to do, um, no, no matter what. There's an element here of Biden's revenge on Obama, who ignored his advice and uh, instead went with Petraeus and the other generals who told him he had to surge. And uh, you know, Biden, I'm sure, has been nurturing a bit of a grudge for quite a few years uh, that the president he served didn't listen to him. And I'm sure he feels he yeah. was right all along. But let's, by the way, let's not forget that the first president to decide to uh, withdraw troops from Afghanistan with a with a clear end date was Donald Trump. So what's really happening here is Biden is kind of a concurring with his predecessor and extending the deadline, isn't he? I mean, is it is it really that radical decision that he made from kind of, kind of from a political perspective? Yeah. Th- this is not an unpopular political decision. This is a risky national security decision. And presidents well, and, I, I, and, and, and presidents balance uh national security and politics all the time. But um, but hold on a second. If we do see a Taliban takeover I'm in saying Kabul, it is not now a unpopular political decision. Not, not if, now. if circumstances change, yeah. yes, the politics will get will get tough. Right. And the, the the other thing I just want to say is there has been a a very significant shift in thinking um across both parties on foreign policy. Neither party wants to be mired in the 9-11 wars or in the Middle East or in that region at all. They are thinking about, you know, big power competitions with, you know, China and Russia. That's the mindset right now. Uh, But, you know, it'll be, might be like uh, Michael Corleone in Godfather 3, you know, just when I thought I was out, they keep pulling me back. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But by the way, you know, the other thing that's been going on before Biden made this decision, which is interesting, Danny, about your point about the kind of the emerging bipartisan consensus is just two weeks ago over in the House, uh, the House Foreign Relations Committee voted to or is it foreign affairs? I can't remember. Is it like, you know, House members have relations and senators have affairs? I can't (laughs) remember. Uh, So the the House (laughs) Committee uh, voted to um, to undo the authorized use of military force which has for the last 20 years been the legal predicate for the executive branch and for the president to use U.S. forces, not only in Afghanistan, but also in Syria, in Iraq, and in a host of other nations. I think 13 other countries have had American troops or military actions deployed there because of the AUMF. What's interesting is that the vote to to undo the AUMF was bipartisan. And it's bipartisan over in the Senate side, too. And it's, Danny, I think really strong evidence about this kind of bipartisan consensus to pivot to the larger geopolitical Uh, uh, Well, I I would argue that uh, uh, while the AUMF is long overdue um, for getting rid of it, uh, doing so will have about as much uh, impact on how presidents respond to national security threats as the War Powers Act passed after the Vietnam War, which is to 
say very little, if any. Presidents will make the decisions they feel they need to make in the country's uh, interests and in their own political interests. But that said, uh, you know, we could uh, blab on or we could talk to two really good experts we've got (laughs) for this show uh, who know a lot more than any of us about the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. So let's get to it. We now have with us Richard Clark, uh, former White House counterterrorism advisor under Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, former Assistant Secretary of State. Dick, welcome back to Skullduggery. Yeah, good to be back. So uh, you were at the White House during the time that uh, Afghanistan was being run by the Taliban and was giving safe haven to al-Qaeda. You were there when we invaded Afghanistan after 9-11, and now President Biden has said he's going to withdraw all troops by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the attacks. Um, Is this the right move by President Biden at this time? It's a very courageous move. Uh, and it's not going to be politically great for him, I don't think, because uh, there's a high probability it won't work. There's a high probability that that government will fall uh, and we'll have perhaps the scene that we had when the government in Saigon uh, fell, you know, and there was the that famous iconic image of the the helicopter on the top of the uh, roof of the U.S. Embassy with, with taking off with the last people in it. Um, that could happen. And it's not foreordained. And there are many things that Biden uh, and his team can do, perhaps short of uh, U.S. men and women on the ground, to stop that from happening. Uh, and clearly, that's what they're thinking about. But Biden took a big risk that that is going to be the outcome. And he did it knowingly. Uh, he did it because he thought it was the right thing. He did it because somebody eventually had to do it. And he kind of said, hey, look, uh, you know, past presidents have have passed on this one. Uh, and it was an implied criticism, I think, of, of his old boss, Obama, and certainly uh, a little bit of Trump, that no one had the courage to, to say the emperor has no clothes, that there's, there's no way we can make this work. Um, I think the big mistake was not any of theirs. I think it was uh, George W. Bush's. Uh, you mentioned I was in the White House. Uh, I was in the room where it happened, you know, that night the night of 9-11 and and the following few days when we all said you have to send U.S. forces into Afghanistan. Uh, That was true. What was not true was that we had to stay there uh, and try to create, you know, some sort of Montgomery County democracy or something. We we bit off a lot bigger goal than the counterterrorism community originally had. And we did it, frankly, without a lot of discussion, without a lot of thought. The CIA took over the ground operation uh, initially, and then DOD came in behind it. And, and there wasn't a lot uh, of policy planning. There wasn't a lot of what's the end game? How the hell do we get out of this thing? I just want to ask you one quick uh, follow-up to this. You you supported the decision to invade Afghanistan, of course, yeah. because you knew uh, what the role was the Taliban played in protecting I, I, Al-Qaeda. Look, I had, been, I had been asking for it before 9-11. 
to be to be fair. An invasion of Afghanistan? Well, U.S. forces to help the Northern Alliance. So the, the northern one third of the country was controlled by a different group that was friendly to us. Uh, and we were pitching, give covert action uh, assistance and give U.S. overt U.S. military assistance to that group uh, as a way of putting pressure on the Taliban. Uh, so, yeah, we were we were saying get involved in Afghanistan. But the, the, the question I was going to ask is if you agreed it was right to go in there in the first place, at what point should we have gotten out? Well, what look, this this is very self-serving, but what I had in mind at the time uh, was pretty much what we had in mind before 9-11, which is you go in there, uh, you clean out the camps because Al Qaeda had had military bases. I mean, they had big installations where they trained people and they had an organized military unit. I think it was the 555th Battalion or something uh, that was fighting on the side of the Taliban against the Northern Alliance. You find the camps, you find the units, you destroy them. You you can try to find and kill as many of the leaders as possible. Uh, You destroy their infrastructure and then leave Uh, or, or withdraw to the area controlled by the Northern Alliance in the north. Um, but the notion of staying there and running the cities uh, and running the roads, uh, connecting the cities, the Belt Road, uh, and trying to, to create and prop up a government, that was that was an overreach. Uh, Richard, leave or, or leave behind a small counterterrorism force, uh, you know, the sort of light footprint that Biden himself was recommending in 2009 uh, when uh, Obama eventually made the decision to surge 100,000 troops to Afghanistan. And how big a mistake was that in your mind? Well, I, I think Biden was right back then in the debate with Obama uh, that we should not have done the surge. I don't think the surge accomplished anything. It just delayed the decision that, that Biden's now made. Uh, and during that delay, a lot, you know, some number of Americans died. Uh, I think we could have, after 9-11, after we went in and cleaned up the camps and uh, did what needed to be done, we could have left behind a small counterterrorism military operation based out of the Northern Territory. We can't easily do that now uh, because what the Taliban have said to us is, if you don't get out, we're going full bore against you. Uh, we haven't had U.S. casualties since the, uh, the agreement uh, because they're just waiting for us to leave. They thought we were going to leave on May 1st. And they said, if you stay beyond May 1st, we'll go back to war with you and we'll we'll kill Americans and we'll make you make you suffer. I think what Biden is hoping is that they'll realize that that's not smart right now. And he's given them a new date, September 11th, uh, appropriately enough. And therefore, they won't attack us uh, between May 1st and September 11th. But I think if you try to leave a U.S. military unit behind anywhere uh, in the country, they're going to come after it. Uh, and then you're going to have to try to rescue that U.S. military unit and you're just going to get into a mess again. So what are what are the implications um, of this full withdrawal? Obviously, uh, for the Afghan people, you know, if the Taliban takes over, they will be repressed, women in particular. But uh, there are also regional stability issues and, um, and you know, broader national security interests at stake here. Yeah. So in, ter- in terms of the Taliban people, it could be potentially awful. Uh, and that's why it's a politically tough decision. 
uh, for Biden, because there could be images on our TV screens, whether it's a year from now or two years from now, uh, of a lot of uh, Afghan people who put their faith and trust in the United States getting killed uh, or, or getting imprisoned or getting, you know, particularly for women, uh, getting thrown back into the 14th century. Uh, all the gains that the society achieved could be lost, uh, and that will be terrible. But the question that, that Biden had to face is, what is the cost of continuing to prop up that Kabul regime uh, with U.S. military forces? It's not just a continuation of the last year where no one was trying to kill us. If you want to stay and you want to prop up that Kabul regime, you're going to be engaged in combat where the Taliban is coming after U.S. forces. The people say, oh, it, it should be like Korea. It should be like Japan. It should be like Germany, where we have... U.S. forces there 50, 60, 70 years after the, after the war. That analogy doesn't work because there's no one in Japan or Germany uh, or Korea trying to kill us. And if you have U.S. forces in the country after whatever the date is, May 1st to September 11th, they're going to try to kill us and they're, they're going to succeed. It's going to be bloody. And then our response is going to be, oh, we need more U.S. troops or we need more you know, air power uh, because they're killing us. So, yeah, it's going, to, it's going to be messy. There are going to be bad images. In terms of regional stability, I'm not sure it's a problem. The Iranians on the one side and the Pakistanis on the other, I think, have figured out how to influence things in Afghanistan so that it doesn't get too out of control. If somehow ISIS bloomed or al-Qaeda bloomed again, neither Iran nor Pakistan wants that to happen. Uh, and I think we could work with them to try to deal with the, th the threat of an ISIS base uh, or even an Al-Qaeda base happening again there. And, you know, frankly, we could also do things at a distance, uh, although that's less effective. Well, at, well, uh, at a distance or, I mean, you, uh, you spent a lot of years in the, in the shadow wars. Aren't we going to have some off-the-books presence there as well? I mean, we've got special operations forces in hundreds of countries that Americans don't know about. Yeah. Well, we have an off-the-books presence there now. When you see the number of U.S. forces there, it doesn't include – the number that they're using publicly doesn't include like 1,200 uh, special operators uh, in the CT mission. I don't think you can do that, but you can certainly have CIA personnel and maybe some handful uh, of special forces. Contractors? Certainly contractors based yeah. in the north, uh, probably not based in Kabul. Yeah, you can do that. And, and, and if it comes to that, again, you can have bombers go in and blow up camps. You can have cruise missiles go in and blow up camps if it comes to that. Um, you know, I, I think to go back and look what happened when the Soviet Union uh, left might be instructive. The government in Kabul did not fall overnight, but it did ultimately fall. Uh, it struggled for a while. It resisted for a while. The scenario may look more like that. There's another more rosy scenario that no one's talking about, which the government, uh, the Biden administration is actually aware of and working on, which is to put in a different peacekeeping force. Uh, there's some discussion of putting in a Turkish-led peacekeeping force. The Wait Turks a second. Are, NATO has pulled out. They're saying they're getting out as well. Yeah, but Turkey We're going to get the Turks, our good friends, the Turks, to go in there. In they're already stand? there. So they're already there. What's in it for them? What's in it for Erdogan? 
he has uh, obviously you know delusions of grandeur, and he's putting he's got you he's got Turkish troops in Qatar, he's got Turkish troops in Libya, uh, you know he wants to be the new Pasha, the new Ottoman uh, Empire. I don't know what's in it for them, but they're talking with the United States about the possibility uh, of when NATO pulls out of the Turks staying uh, and getting other Muslim nations to help. Now, if that happens. You know, maybe something will work out. The United States doesn't have to be the player to make it work. That's what I'm saying. Uh, and if there, if Pakistan wants to become involved, if Turkey wants to become involved, maybe the worst case scenario won't happen. Weren't the Pakistanis basically backing the Taliban over these years? Yeah, and they still are. So we want them to come in. I mean, well, having them having saying to the Pakistanis who rely on the IMF uh, to keep their country afloat. Uh, saying to the Pakistanis, it's on you to make sure these things don't happen uh, or you're going to pay the price in terms of economic assistance. You know, that's something the Biden administration is trying to do. If I can bring us back to kind of some domestic issues for a moment, another pretty consequential decision we made after 9-11 in the days immediately following, not only did we send troops into Afghanistan, but Congress also passed the authorized use of military force, which still stands and in the wake of 9-11 has been used to justify U.S. military actions, I think, in more than 13 countries over the course of 20 years. Now that Biden has decided to pull our troops out of Afghanistan, is it finally the time that the, the AUMF can be reconsidered? Oh, yeah, I think it, it should have been reconsidered a long time ago. And, and Senator uh, Tim Kaine of Virginia is doing a lot of talking uh, to the administration. Uh, and I think he has some bipartisan support to come up with a new AUMF, much more narrow, uh, that allows counterterrorism operations under certain circumstances. But isn't this broad, open-ended kind of thing? Yeah, but most presidents from the executive branch or from the military perspective like the AUMF, don't they? They like the flexibility that it gives. Do you think Biden is the is going to is going to voluntarily agree to strip himself of the the kind of the broad scope that the AUMF gives him? I think Biden is, you know, the former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I think Biden is. Uh, interested in doing something along the lines of what Tim Kaine has proposed, which doesn't strip him altogether. It replaces this AUMF with a narrower one. But remember, the position of all presidents has been they don't need an AUMF. The position of all presidents and all White House general counsels is we can just do this. Uh, it's in the inherent right of the president. Whether you agree with that or not, I've never seen a White House that didn't say that. Uh, and if there is no AUMF at all, if this one goes away and is not replaced and they think they need to do something, they'll just do it because they think they have that inherent constitutional right. Dick, let, let's uh, let's do a little uh, alternative history for a second. You were one of the toughest and most persistent critics of George W. Bush's decisions to go into Iraq. What if we hadn't uh, diverted resources from the war in Afghanistan? Um, would that have made a difference to the ultimate outcome here? If, if you were pursuing a strategy, uh, which allegedly we were, of trying to pacify most of the country and, and stabilize the, the, the central government in Kabul, uh, and you had all of those resources that you pulled out of Afghanistan after you initially put them in, yeah, I think, you, sure, it would have meant putting more resources in, but putting them in earlier uh, and not, uh, not holding back the way uh, Rumsfeld did. Rumsfeld didn't send some units into Afghanistan because he was holding them back for Iraq. 
when they got closer to do Iraq, he pulled out some units, uh, some of the special forces kinds of units that we needed there. Uh, yeah, you would have had a much better chance. But at the end of the day, I think you have to ask yourself, is this something that you could ever do, that anybody could ever do? Americans tend to believe that uh, all problems can be solved. Uh, and I think when you're dealing with places like Afghanistan, you've got to have a different mindset. Alexander the Great couldn't do it. The, uh, the, the British Army couldn't do it. The Red Army couldn't do it. It is conceivable that nobody can, right? That Afghanistan is essentially ungovernable. Uh, and is never going to have a strong central government. Graveyard of empires. Is that <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I've got uh, two questions for you on Afghanistan. You said when we started that there was a high probability that we are going to see images like we saw at the end of the Vietnam War yes. um, with the U.S. Uh, pulling out. Um, I know in the intel world, people like to deal in numbers when we talk about probabilities or likelihoods. How would you assess how high that probability is that that's what's going to happen? 80, 90, 70 percent? What would you say? Well, I know occasionally you see these intelligence documents that say high means this in terms of probability. Uh, I think that's bullshit. I, you know, but right. I, I, you know, I, the, the only way you can put numbers against things is when you have actuarial tables. Uh, and I can tell you the probability of Michael Isikoff's uh, car getting hit by another <laughs> car. Uh, but that's that's where I end my actuarial table. Pretty high if you've ever <laughs> driven with Isikoff. <laughs> yeah, but at least I'm usually <laughs> off the road during COVID times these days. All right, but here's my uh, my main question. You famously gave testimony after 9-11 in which you said to the families of the victims of 9-11, our government has failed you and I want to apologize on behalf of our government. What would you say to the families of U.S. soldiers who died in Afghanistan, more than 2,000? What would you say to the Afghans that worked with us for all these years and are likely to be targeted by the Taliban? What would you say to them right now? Well, oddly enough, I think talking to the families of American soldiers is, is easier. Um, the first time I had to do this was after the, the Battle of Mogadishu in Somalia. Uh, and I went down to uh, Fort Bragg uh, for a memorial service uh, and summoned up all of my courage and went over and, and tried to uh, console the, the families of uh, the soldiers who died in, in Mogadishu. And I was prepared to have them spit on me, slap me across the face, whatever. I got a very different response. The response I got from them from the families was, this is what they wanted to do. They knew the risks. They volunteered for this. You know, this is very different from Vietnam, uh, where people over uh, fighting in Vietnam and dying in Vietnam were not volunteers and had not chosen to be there. These are people, uh, people who fought in Afghanistan, who have a sense of mission that says, if I'm ordered to do something, I do it. You know, unless it's a clearly an illegal order, what I am is a military person and military people do what the commander in chief says. We don't question the policy. And there was incredible courage, incredible uh, sacrifice by Americans in Afghanistan. But I don't think any of them or, or the families of the, uh, of the dead have a, uh, an attitude that it was a waste of time or uh, that they did the wrong thing. I think their attitude is 
the United States leadership at the time thought that was the right thing to do. And we follow uh, orders. That's what we, our job is. Now, the Afghan people is a whole other issue. I mean, I, I, I just, my heart goes out to them because particularly the women, um, you know, the, the society has so changed and so improved as corrupt as that government is, as inefficient as that government is providing services to the people. Uh, a lot of people have put themselves at risk uh, and some people will be killed if, if the government falls altogether. I hope we have a plan uh, as we kind of did in Vietnam to get out of the country, those uh, in special refugee status, those people who uh, worked so closely with us uh, that they'll be killed uh, if, the, if the Taliban take over. Uh, I hope to God that we have a plan to do that sort of thing. Dick, switching topics to Russia for a second. This week, uh, President Biden uh, announced uh, sanctions on Russia for messing with our election, for the solar winds cyber attack, it includes um, financial sanctions, also expelling diplomats. Um, is it going to make any difference? Is it a slap in the wrist? What was your reaction to the Biden administration's response uh, to to Russia? My first question was, is this all there is? Um, because there was a little bit of winking and nodding that suggested uh, that there might also be a cyber response you know, at a time and place of our own choosing. I think Jake Sullivan said that our responses will be seen and unseen. Uh, so, you know me, I want to see the stuff that's unseen. Uh, and I, I think from, from my perch, uh, what's interesting is the, the point-counterpoint, the retaliation cycle in cyberspace. And I don't know what's going on there yet. So, will. so, so you know as much uh, about cyber policy as anybody, having worked on it, having written novels about it. And you know that this is a, a, a dangerous game. And, yeah. and the, 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 the tit for tat that you just referred to, the danger of escalation, how you manage that. How do you think the Biden administration is, is thinking about that? I think the way they're thinking about it is People in glass houses shouldn't throw code. That's my <laughs> explanation. Um, as somebody was quoted the other day, and uh, some unnamed person was quoted the other day in, in an article saying, hey, when you're covered in, uh, in gasoline, you don't throw matches. Uh, so, yeah, you don't want to get into, into a, 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 an ever-escalating tit-for-tat in cyber war uh, with the Russians because we have a lot more things that can be broken than they do. Uh, and we can be hurt more than they can. That having been said, I think there is an interest uh, in the administration in finding something we can do in cyberspace to say, we can do it too. Because it's, it's in terms of crisis stability, it's a bad situation where only one side attacks. Um, and I think they're therefore looking for a, a demonstration shot, uh, to use the old NATO strategy, a demonstration shot with cyber, uh, and they'll, you know, say, "Look, you know, we could, we could do more, uh, but let's let's stop it here." Um, I don't know if they'll do that. I think they're looking for that. In terms of what they did do, um, it'll take a while for those economic sanctions to have any real bite. Uh, and in terms of expelling spies, you know, we do that every once in a while. They expel some, we expel some. I don't think it makes much difference. In fact, they just did. I just saw come across the wires that they yeah, ten. expelled 10 diplomats, U.S. Yeah. diplomats. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can be sure that they're not diplomats. And the ones that we expelled aren't diplomats either. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, there were two interesting disclosures yesterday by what the um, by what the Biden administration did on Russia that speak to the sort of murkiness of intelligence and basing actions on intelligence. On the one hand, they sanctioned this guy Konstantin Kalimnik, who was an old associate of Paul Manafort, saying that he was a Russian intelligence asset who received sensitive campaign and polling data uh, from the Trump campaign in 2016, and then shared it with Russian intelligence services. Yeah, now, let me let, let me ask you guys. I, yeah. I read that and said that's not news. Well, it went beyond what Mueller had concluded or what Mueller said in his report. What Mueller said was, yes, Manafort had shared polling data with Konstantin Kalimnik uh, Mm -hmm. during the summer of 2016, Mm -hmm. um, but could not say what Kalimnik did with it. Well, he didn't wallpaper his bedroom with it. I mean, you know. the, the, The purpose, though, that was suggested in the report was that it may have been simply Manafort's effort to curry favor with various Kremlin linked oligarchs uh, so he could get future business with them after the campaign. Look, I, I always thought the reason my, the reason my reaction yesterday was there's right. nothing new here is I always thought it was obvious, and I frankly I thought you reported it, uh, among others, that you know that data went straight to Russia to help them with their uh, disinformation campaign and their well, targeting. Certainly, to the extent that Kalimnik is an intelli- Russian intelligence guy, yeah, it went straight to Russia. Well, look, I mean, the, we know that the Russians micro-targeted interest groups, right? Uh, Correct. How the hell did they do that if they didn't have that data? They got yeah. that data. They didn't get it from Kalimnik. They got it from somebody yeah. because they couldn't have done the kind of micro-targeting they did of interest groups without that kind of data. I, I, I guess the question I was going to ask is, yes, you're raising excellent questions, which some of us have been asking and writing about for years now. Yeah. But it would have been nice to know what the basis for the Treasury Department's conclusion was since yeah. it did go further than what Robert Mueller said in his report. Right. And, and there are two there, there are two possibilities. One is they base it off your reporting and one is uh, they base it off intelligence. Right. But I don't know the answer to that. And, mm-hmm. and the quality of the intelligence, we don't know. But in any case, you remember the big fuss last year when it was reported that the CIA had information that the Russians were paying bounties to uh, the Taliban to kill Americans. Yeah. Huge uproar from Democrats on Capitol Hill about that and in the media, a lot of uh, questions for the Trump administration. Yesterday, they say it was based on intelligence that was of low to moderate confidence. And and some of it appear or much of it appears to come from detainees who may have been saying things for God knows what reasons, but perhaps to sort of curry favor with whoever was uh, interrogating them. What did you make of that? That surprised me. Um, Surprised me a lot because I was certainly told, and I'm sure you were, too, at the time that the intelligence was pretty damn good. Uh, And this was something that was actually widely known uh, among the U.S. military command uh, in in Kabul, so I I still believe that story, uh, and uh, I don't know what to make of the of the attempt to water it down. I mean, but what would be the Biden administration's motive in watering down what was really a Democratic talking point yeah. for attacking Trump? Yeah, there's the, aside from it being true, uh, what they said, I can't think of a motive. 
<laughs> right. I wonder if we can shift, shift gears to another part of the globe where uh, the, the tensions are rising, and that's in the, it, the uh, South China Sea, where uh, there apparently are kind of rival aircraft deployers deployed by the United States and, and China and, and tensions continue to kind of bubble along. There's a certain seasonality to this. It feels like every, every spring, mm -hmm. this sort of story um, emerges, but, you know, we, we've kind of covered the globe here. I'm wondering, are we missing a story about China? Is that where the real threat lies right now? Well, if you if you look at the uh, the threat briefing that the intelligence chiefs gave to the to the Congress recently, they certainly said China's the the big threat that they worry about uh, going forward. I think the problem that we've got in the South China Sea uh, is a bit like the the problem we have in in the Arabian Gulf, Persian Gulf, uh, is that something could happen tactically between captains of ships that could get out of hand. Uh, when you have potentially hostile forces operating uh, like that uh, in proximity to each other, somebody can make a mistake. Uh, somebody can ram a ship. Somebody can fire a gun uh, and things escalate and get out of control. There's a real risk of that at any time, but there's a heightened risk of it now with Iran uh, in the Gulf and with China and the South China Sea. The orders that you give to those, those ship captains out there, uh, on our side at least, have to be stand your ground, but don't be aggressive uh, and be sure to phone home before you do anything dramatic. And those are the sort of classic military tensions that one imagines is kind of emerging between the United States and China. But obviously, there's also a fair amount of uh, conflict going on beneath the surface that we're not necessarily seeing, especially in the cyberspace. Uh, much as we're concerned about what Russia is doing, uh, China's probably doing the same. Are they a comparable threat, a greater threat? Why aren't we hearing more about China on this front? Well, I think we are in terms of the Chinese threat in cyberspace. I think we are hearing about it and we've been hearing about it for a long time. There are different threats. The Chinese in cyberspace are largely, and I'll come back to that, largely an economic threat uh, in that they, they hack their way into companies, they steal intellectual property, they steal things that are of immediate commercial value and R&D for longer term value, uh, and they give it to their companies. Russia doesn't do that. But uh, last year, we caught the Chinese in in something a little different. Last year, we caught the Chinese putting back doors in large transformers that they have sold into the U.S. power grid. Uh, and there's no reason for that from an intelligence perspective. There's no reason to do that, except that you want someday to be able to take down the section of the power grid. Uh, so what that means is the Chinese and the Russians both are laying seeds uh, in our infrastructure. I suspect we're doing that to them too. And the reason for that is if a crisis suddenly spins up and the president says, I want to shut the lights off in Moscow, like on that episode of Madam Secretary, you can't just do that the next day. It takes weeks, months sometimes to get into the infrastructure and stay there. Uh, and so you do it in peacetime. You hack your way into infrastructure in peacetime and you leave back doors so that you can get in. I know the Russians have been doing that. We now know the Chinese have been doing that. There's also the online disinformation. And um, mm -hmm. we are going to be reporting in a few days on some new evidence that both Chinese and Russian actors have been 
spreading QAnon-related online propaganda, basically f- helping to fuel the QAnon movement. What do you make of that? And more broadly on QAnon, what do you make of the whole QAnon phenomenon? Well, on, on why Russia is doing it, I think that's straightforward. The Russians have a long-term plan uh, just to weaken the United States. Uh, and historically, you can go back 20, 30, 50, 60 years. Russian intelligence has always been looking for groups in the United States that they could support just to weaken the United States internally. Uh, you know, they'd, they'd like nothing more than that crazy idea they tried to spin up of, of Texas seceding from the Union. You know, they'd like for what happened to the Soviet Union, where it broke up into pieces, they'd like that to happen to the United States. Long-term plan. And, you know, it has some successes. Will it ever get to where it wants to go? I don't know. I never thought it would get to the point where people were attacking the U.S. Capitol. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe long-term it's working. What's surprising is the Chinese saw this and said, we want to do it too. And that's new, I think, having the Chinese saying that they want to weaken us internally. A little, it's a little inside look at President Xi and his personal desire to compete with the United States and definitely defeat the United States and become number one. And, and that's the thing that disturbs me about, uh, about China. They used to be just an economic competitor, and in which case, fine, right? But Xi seems to have glories of empire, and Xi seems to want to like take the United States down and rub its nose in the fact that it's no longer number one. As to why QAnon exists, they've always been nutter groups. Uh, as far back as you can go in American history. What's different, uh, and this is hardly a a novel observation, what's different is what the internet does to them. Uh, The internet is like putting them on crack. It's like superpowering them. Uh, And and I used to joke when I was in the White House that there was was 27% of the American people would say yes to anything that you asked them. If you believe in flying saucers, yes. And do you believe in alien abductions? Yes. And and if you looked at the polls, you know, there are polls that you could go and find. It's like, do you believe in alien abductions? 27%. And there are people like that out there. There always have been. The difference is now that foreign enemies of the United States are trying to manipulate them and use them. And even without that, just the the existence of social media, the existence of the Internet communities gives them much more uh, capability than they had in the 1950s. Well, uh, sobering comments uh, from uh, Richard Clark, which is what we usually get when we talk to you, (laughs) Dick. Uh, But I want to thank you for joining us again on uh, Skullduggery. My pleasure. All right, we now have with us Elliot Ackerman. Uh, Elliot served four tours in Afghanistan between 2008 and 11. He is also a prolific author of um, multiple books. How many books, uh, Elliot? Um, my sixth book uh, just came out last month. Okay, that was supposed to be one of the easier questions. Yeah. For you. But anyway, <laughs> um, welcome to uh, Skullduggery. Uh, Having served in Afghanistan, having risked your life, uh, having presumably seen some of your colleagues lose their lives, um, what's your reaction to President Biden's decision to pull all U.S. troops out by September 11th? 
you know, I think my reaction, you could sort of put it into, I mean, two silos. There is, you know, whatever emotional reaction I have to that. And there's also just sort of the, you know, the strategist in me that that is has sort of an, more of an analytical reaction to the announcement. So maybe I'll, I'll answer with the, with the latter and then we can talk more about the former. Uh, I have a hard time understanding the strategy that is informing this decision in so much as um, to draw, for instance, like a, a parallel in business. One of the great axioms of business is you don't make decisions based off of prior cost. You make decisions based off of your current position. And our current position in Afghanistan is one where we are able to stabilize Afghanistan, secure our interest in the region with a relatively minor cost of 3,500 U.S. troops in country and, we're, you know, and, and also nominal cost to the Afghan government. Obviously, five, 10 years ago, when we had more than 100,000 troops in Afghanistan and were surging there, the costs were far greater. But when we look strategically, I don't understand how by actually making these decisions, it's probably going to be the more costly decision for us in the long run. And what I mean by that is it appears as though we're going to pull all of these troops out. Everyone's going to leave. First of all, no one's talking about whether or not we're going to be able to withdraw successfully and peacefully. I I believe this summer uh, we're going to really see things heat up in Afghanistan. For instance, on May 1st, the Trump administration had negotiated a ceasefire with Afghanistan, and that's the date that the terms of that ceasefire expire. We will still have troops in Afghanistan now without that ceasefire in place. And if you know your Afghan history, all the way back to the Brits in 1842, when they tried to withdraw out of Afghanistan, they were killed. Literally, a 4,500-man force was massacred with one survivor. So unlike the Soviets, who could drive out of Afghanistan because they shared a border with it, and unlike our experience in Iraq, where we could drive across the desert into Kuwait, we now have to fly out of Afghanistan. It's the only way we can get our troops out. And we only have three airfields in the country that the U.S. controls. So I think that although it might seem in the moment that we are finally shutting the book on Afghanistan, not taking on this cost anymore, I think we're actually going to find out that this path, just strategically speaking, will be far more costly for us. And I can talk about that more. Well, yeah, let me ask you about the first part of what you talked about, which is which is your emotional uh, reaction. Um, and, you know, as a, as a novelist, one of the things you've done is written about the Afghans um, with uh, with a lot of empathy. And in fact, I think in your first novel, Green on Blue, uh, your main character uh, was an Afghan boy. So I want to ask you about um, the the emotions that you felt when you heard this decision uh, in, in in terms of uh, the Afghans, because you spent a lot of time in that country building relationships uh, with uh, with Afghans. And I'm actually going to read a, a quote that you gave the New York Times just a couple of days ago. For years, I sat across from Afghans in shuras and I looked them in the eye and told them to ally themselves with America. That was the first thing I thought about when I heard the news. What about these people who trusted us? Will this be seen as a great betrayal? How will the world see us now as a nation and a people? How do you answer that question? Well, first of all, it's complicated um, because I understand, you know, the cost of that war. I don't want to see Americans dying in Afghanistan, although it's important to point out 
that in the last five years, more American service members have died in training accidents than have died in Afghanistan. So the war today is not what the war was in the years I was serving there when it was sort of at its height. Um, but all of that being said, so much of my job and the job of many of the service members who, who were in Afghanistan was to basically convince our equivalents there, you know, whether they be members of the government of Afghanistan, local leaders and members of the military we were serving alongside the Afghan military, that their best interests were involved in throwing in their lot with us. And I can't tell you how many hundreds, if not thousands of conversations I had over cups of tea offering those assurances to Afghans. And so to see us pull out in this way, listen, we're kidding ourselves if we don't think this is going to be a massive stain on our national honor, if we don't think every country who in the future we look at and say, will you support us? Will you stand for the ideals that we stand with? Will you be shoulder to shoulder with us in the world? Is it going to look at us and be like, why? So you can do to us what you did to the Afghans. You can do to us what you did to the Iraqis. You can do to us what you did to the Vietnamese. And I only, and I bring up my comments before about how treacherous this withdrawal is going to be because the whole world is going to see it on television and people remember those images. I'm sure all of you remember the image of those helicopters lifting off the U.S. government buildings in Saigon in 1975. And hey, listen, I hope we don't have any images like that, but there are a whole array of people who are adversarial to the United States, not just the Taliban, but our, our, our Russian antagonists, our Iranian antagonists, who at this moment would love nothing more than to create those images. And we're going to have to sit here between now and September and hope they're unable to do it. So, you know, we all heard the president's speech and I wish him well, but I think it's also important at this moment to be stealing ourselves as we sit here in April for what's going to come between April and September. And our military now is being asked to pull off a very challenging operation. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it's basically um, a withdrawal under fire. So, uh, so let's watch. Uh, and hope it goes well. But specific to the Afghans and the emotions I have, it's it's personally difficult to feel like when you look back in retrospect that these assurances that you were giving weren't really based on a strong, strong foundation. So are there are there any set of circumstances in which the United States withdrawing from Afghanistan isn't going to unleash the concerns that you've raised? And if that's the case, when, if ever, would we withdraw from Afghanistan? Well, I think one of you know one of the things, and I've written about this. Um, I'm not someone who advocates for a perpetual war per se, but I think that over the years, somewhere it's crept into the American psyche that the, that wars only end when every single soldier comes home, and we have zero troop presence in a country, and that has literally never been the case in the wars we've prosecuted. Actually, the only wars in which at the end of the war there's a zero flatlined U.S. troop presence are the wars that we lose. The wars that we've won, for instance, like, you know, the Second World War, which I would sort of argue is our American Iliad. It's like our Earth story, at least for contemporary America, when we think about a war. I mean, we've had troops in Europe for, you know, what, 75 plus years now. It looks like we had troops on the Korean Peninsula still. We have troops in Okinawa. We have, I mean, list the countries where there are U.S. troops. And I do believe that the United States plays a important role in the world, not as a policeman in that we're, you know, in all these places where actively in combat and U.S. soldiers should be dying every day. But, you know, we are a stabilizing force. And if you look at this pullout, the vast majority of our NATO allies were pleading for, are pleading for us not to do this because they know how destabilizing it's going to be uh, in a country like Afghanistan, which has a history of being an incredibly de destabilizing partner in the region. So I think it's, it's important to have that context that 
that we can keep troops in a country and not be at war. And our current footprint in Afghanistan, which U.S. service members are relatively safe, I think, you know, two died last year. There's 3,500 there. The Afghans are doing all of the fighting in this war. Uh, I would rather have that scenario than a, a vacuum that we're about to create. Elliot, before uh, you came on, we had Dick Clark, the former White House counterterrorism advisor mm -hmm. on the show. And he pointed out the difference between us having troops in Germany and South Korea is that in those places, the people in those countries aren't trying to kill us. There aren't forces you know, they're there mm -hmm. to protect against potential invaders, but they're not in a hostile war environment where their lives are threatened. And so it comes back to the question that Victoria was asking, which is, if not now, when? There's does not appear to be any strategy for winning the war in Afghanistan in any sense. The Taliban only seems to be getting stronger. It's certainly as strong as it has ever been. The Afghan government is rife with corruption. What's the alternative to doing what sure. Biden is doing? Well, I would, I would, I mean, with all due respect, I would disagree with Mr. Clark. And I would say, if you look, for instance, at South and Central America, which we are forced as Americans, just through geography, to have those nations within our sphere of influence, we've long had enduring troop presences in place like Colombia, for instance. And those troops have been employed to support a central government, which is friendly to the United States, and fight a drug war. And the war against the FARC in Colombia, for instance, it was a decades-long war and has actually ended advantageously to U.S. interests. So I see it somewhat differently. Then with regards to where our position is at today, you know, the if not when, I would also argue that our perpetual inability for the last 10 years to just stare the Taliban in the eye, or adversaries, I guess I said, guess what? We are not going anywhere. That has actually, our inability to do that, all the way back to, I would argue, President Obama's speech in 2009 at West Point, which if you don't recall it, it was his Afghan surge speech. And once in the very same speech, he said, we are surging troops into Afghanistan tens of thousands of them, and here's the end date when they're all going to leave. So in that instant, and I, and again, when I talk about these conversations I've had with dozens and dozens of Afghans, I mean, these aren't esoteric things. The Afghan people, they pay extremely close attention to our news. So I'm literally in Kunar or in Paktika or in Farah province sitting down with a, a local village elder, you know, and it looks like Lord of the Rings around us, you know, something from the 14th century. And he's saying, oh, you know, I was watching BBC News last night on my on my phone and I saw that Obama says you all are leaving by 2014. And the local Taliban chief down the road says, you know, he's going to be here forever. So I'm not going to support you. So I would argue that this sort of perpetual need to have one foot out the door and our inability to recognize or to at least posture ourselves that like we're not like Afghanistan is not going anywhere. You know, pulling these troops out of Afghanistan is not material. That's actually not the material thing. The material thing is the signal that it's sending to the world, which is we wash our hands of this. We're done. And what's going to flood into that vacuum? And the thing that kills me is like we've seen this before. Like this just happened in 2011 in Iraq. And so we're going to pull all these troops out. And I listen again. It's, it's just it's an extremely risky strategy. 
In 2011, we pulled every single last U.S. soldier out of Iraq. We wouldn't leave anyone behind. We didn't want to sign a status of forces agreement with then the Maliki government. And then two years later, I, I covered the war in Syria. Two and a half years later, in 2013, 2014, rise of the Islamic State, Mosul, everything gets overrun, and we're right back in Afghanistan. We're right back in Iraq. And I just think to believe that that, to, to place a bet that that is the exact same thing isn't going to happen in Afghanistan with the Taliban, I think is an incredibly, it's just a really, really risky bet. Uh, let me ask you this, Elliot, because you know you talked about uh, uh, what what we owe the Afghans, but you've also written about what the Afghans owe the United States for all of our sacrifices mm-hmm. uh, on their behalf over the last uh, twenty years. Mm-hmm. And this Afghan government and the previous ones l- let the country become a corrupt, you know, narco state. Uh, with you know warlords holding holding sway, weak institutions. I mean, just a mess. So you, could, you ask the question: Whether did the Afghans do their part, and how much tolerance should the American people have uh, for the United States? You know, giving up treasure uh, and, uh, and and American lives and and being repaid yeah. in that way. Yeah, I mean, listen. The last person you have to convince about the dysfunction of the Afghan government or the dysfunction of elements of our efforts there is a veteran of the Afghan war. Like, I, I assure you, I've, like, I've lived this and have very much had my massive frustrations. And that's why I've written that, you know, yes, we owe certain things to the Afghan people, but they owe us something. They, you know, they owe they owe us a government that, that, that functions relatively well. They owe us an armed forces that can somewhat hold its own. They owe us all of this. And in many respects, I mean, you know, they've created aspects of it. Um, and, you know, sort of, you know, to our point before, you know, if we were sitting here right now and U.S. force posture in Afghanistan was like 50,000 troops, 70,000 troops, and that was the bare minimum we could we could have in place to hold things together. And we're losing, you know, 40 or 50 Americans, KIA every week. You know, I would frankly probably be one of the first people saying, you know what, the Biden administration just needs to take the L here. We're going to take the L. We're going to get our people out of here. It's, it's just not worth it. But the thing that to me is just sort of so painful, and it was similar in Iraq in 2011, is that like, and pardon me for lack of a better term, like we don't need to take the L here. Like we actually don't have to take this loss that it's taken a really long, painful experience, but like the costs have become de minimis enough. And again, I think the far costlier path is what we're about to do. Like if you want to, if your goal is for fewer Americans to die in Afghanistan and for the U.S. taxpayer to pay less money in Central Asia, keeping all of the radicalism that we know exists there at bay, I would argue to you that the better bargain is keep 2,000, 3,500 troops in Afghanistan, keep supporting the Afghan government to a reasonable fiscal level, let the whole world know unequivocally that this is the U.S. This is where we're at in Central Asia. We're staying here. This is in our sphere of influence, and you will get a bargain that way versus what we're about to do. So, so let me ask you this: just quick follow up. Uh, we, so, we're not doing that, as you know. Yeah. Uh, President Biden made this decision. We're pulling our troops out. Is there any way for the United States to 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 keep its commitment to the Afghan people, other than having those troops there? I mean, in terms of. I mean, what would you do uh, to mitigate uh, the decision, which you think is the wrong decision at this point? Um, I mean, first thing I would do, if, if I were in the administration, I would be looking really, really hard on making sure that this that this withdrawal 
is, is handled like is choreographed perfectly because I think the political cost of, I mean, again, just like to get tactical for a second, there are three airports in Afghanistan that America owns will likely be flying out of, all right? There's Bagram Air Base, Jalalabad, and the airfield at Kandahar. So you can imagine, it, like, it's not going to take much, and I would be shocked if, you know, the Taliban with, you know, their Iranian backers, or even the Russians, we all read the story about Russians putting bounties on American service members' heads. It's not that hard to give somebody a latest generation service to air missile and say, shoot down one of those C-17s that's got 150 Americans inside. So, you know, let's imagine that on the cover of newspapers. That's That would be pretty tough, I think, for, for the country to stomach and would be very embarrassing for us. So, so let's get that right. I think if you look back to the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, you know, Najibullah, who uh, was president of Afghanistan when the Soviets left, he held on for about two and a half years. The thing that finally did him in was when, frankly, the Soviets, they just stopped paying the bills. And so if the U.S. government pulls all funding, when the U.S. government pulls all funding from the Afghan government, from Ashraf Ghani's government, from the security forces, I think that's the moment where you see Afghanistan kind of go dark star and just implode on itself. So, you know, the question sort of becomes, how much are we willing to support to keep that from happening? And can we keep it from happening too? Because again, um, I think it's also key to understand that we're sending a very strong signal to Afghanistan, much the same way we send a very strong signal to Iraq by pulling in a 2011 in Maliki. And when we left Iraq, Maliki turned away from America, turned towards the Iranians, and you wind up with this Sunni Shia cleft in the Iraqi government, which led to the rise of the Islamic State with disenfranchised Sunnis. And you're going to have similar dynamics play out in Afghanistan because the Afghan government's going to know, like, Americans are not our backers. Who are our backers? And they're going to be looking for someone else to come in. But look, at the end of the day, we did not go into Afghanistan to help the Afghan people or to build up the Afghan state. We went in because it was in our national interest, because Al-Qaeda was there. It was a safe haven and Al-Qaeda had attacked us. We largely accomplished that mission years ago. And at some point now, it's like it was never the goal, the stated goal to nation build in Afghanistan. Well, it did become the goal. But it, it has become, yeah. it, 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 but it has never, that was never the stated goal. It became that. And, you know, a lot of Americans, um, left and right, Democrat and Republicans look at it and say, this is not our mission in the world to help states like Afghanistan and others around the world. I mean, listen, I, people might not like the message. I'm just here to deliver the message. America might be done with Afghanistan, but Afghanistan ain't done with America. So I just feel like when I this decision, how it's been laid out, I'm like, this is this is an emotional, emotions-based decision. This is not grand strategy at work. It's an emotional kind of domestic political decision. That's great. I mean, maybe I, I maybe I've missed it. I'm not seeing or hearing the grand strategy behind this out of the Biden administration. It's sort of more complex than 20 years is too long. Like we're just done. And that's not strategy. And if America's playing checkers here, I assure you other people are going to be playing chess. There are a lot of people who don't like us. Afghanistan has just decades and centuries of, of history here. And um, it will implode. Uh, I mean, like, listen, it's going to implode. Without the United States, the, the government of Afghanistan is not going to stand on its own two feet for the next 40, 50 years. So the question becomes, 
what happens when it implodes. And I'm just saying it's a huge, it's, we're just kind of making a bet right now. Like, oh, it's probably, you know, we'll be okay. So I hope that's, I hope that's right, but it's risky. Well, uh, um, I hope a lot, of, I think a lot of people hope you're wrong on this. Mm-hmm. But I hope, you, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm yeah. wrong. <laughs> Just before we wrap up, wanted to ask you a quick question about your new book, which actually takes us outside of Afghanistan and into China and Iran. Uh, the the next battlefront, if you will, it's a novel to be sure, but it's informed by your military perspective. Tell us a little bit about the book. Oh, thank you. Um, so the book's title is uh, 2034, and uh, it's a work of speculative fiction that imagines what it would look like if the United States and China went to war. Uh, and the precipitating incident takes place in the South China Sea and over the skies, actually, of Iran. And uh, I co-authored this book with uh, uh, Jim Stavridis, who is a retired uh, Navy four-star admiral. And his last posting was as Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, which is uh, our most senior military officer that leads NATO. So, uh, you know, I like to say for a grim subject, the two of us had a lot of fun writing the book together. <laughs> okay. Well, we will look forward to reading it. And I want to thank you for joining us on Skullduggery. Thank you all for having me. I really enjoyed okay. the conversation. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks.